This is episode 236 of the Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts podcast. This episode is titled, People from Bloomington, with Tiffany Tsao. Welcome to Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts, the show about stuff we like. I'm your host, Jennifer Crittenden, and sometimes I'm lucky enough to be joined by my co-host, Bill Aho, who has an ear for good music and an eye for the extraordinary. Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts is brought to you by Discreet Guide, a training company for improving your speaking and writing skills. We hope you enjoy the show. I am really pleased to welcome a new guest from very far away uh, on the show today. Tiffany Tsao is with us from Australia. Is that right, Tiffany? Yes, that's correct. I'm in Sydney right now. I'll just introduce Tiffany. She's a writer and literary translator. And actually, that's what we're going to be talking about today is a work that she translated. She's the author of the novel, The Majesties, which was originally published in Australia as Under Your Wings. And the Odd Fits fantasy trilogy, so far she has The Odd Fits and The More Known World. She's translated five books from Indonesian into English. Her translation of Norman Erickson's uh, Pasaribu's Happy Stories, mostly, was the winner of the 2022 Republic of Consciousness Prize and long-listed for the International Booker Prize. Her translation of Pasaribu's poetry collection, uh, Sergius Seeks Bacchus. Hope I'm not wrecking that, Tiffany. No, no, that's perfect. Okay, was awarded a Penn Translates grant and shortlisted for the NSW Premier's Translation Prize. So welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. We're going to be talking about a book called People from Bloomington by Budi Dharma. And he was an Indonesian writer. And then Tiffany did the translation of this collection of short stories. So to start us off, to give us some background about everything here, can you tell us how this new edition came to be and what's different about it? Uh, yes. So um, this is the first English language edition of the um, this collection. I'm, I'm very happy to you know say that I was the person who I guess started started the the project rolling. Oh, okay. Um, Interesting. Yeah. So mm -hmm. I had read the collection. I'd been meaning to read it for a long time because I always thought it was very it sounded very interesting. Mm -hmm. Um a set of short stories set in, you know, in the Midwest in, in America, but um written in Indonesian and by an Indonesian author. And I thought, oh that's so interesting. I'd really want to read that. Uh -huh. uh, someday, and it had been on my to-read list for a while, but in Indonesian, not in not in English. And then one day, when my father, who lives in Jakarta, was at a, um, I was visiting him, and I was at a bookshop, and I saw it. I saw this new edition uh, in Indonesian of this book, and I thought, oh, it's finally, you know, finally I can do it because uh -huh. um, it can be hard to track down older works because the collection was originally published in 1980. And I bought it, and I read it, and I was just so mesmerized. By the stories and I thought to myself um, you know um, oh it'd be so cool if it were translated um, and I couldn't even believe it but a translation had not um, 
happened yet of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I'd been thinking of it for a long time and it had been a, you know, just a desire of mine, but I didn't know Buddhi Dharma and I didn't, you know, I was a bit shy about thinking about how to go about it. But then um, another author and a friend who I translate, Norman Erickson Vasaribu, he encouraged me and said like, you should, you should translate it. It's really good. Mm-hmm. And um, then he finally, one day he said like, oh, do you want to meet? Um, and, and ask permission to translate it. And I said, that would be great. Do you think it would be too weird? And, um, you know, he helped me arrange it. And I, arranged, I went to Surabaya, where um, Buddhidharma lives, to meet, meet and ask his permission to translate it. And, yeah, the project just went from there. Aha, uh-huh. interesting. And so tell so first I should mention that the Bloomington in the title is Bloomington, Indiana, which is my hometown. Uh, so yeah, we're all across the globe here between the podcast and the book. But tell us a little bit about how uh Buddhidharma is known in Indonesia. What, you know, what is he known mm. for and how well known is he? Yeah, so um he's pretty well known. And he's known primarily for um, being a master of uh, the short story. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, even though um, that, I, that, that's where he made his reputation primarily. And then he sort of wrote more novels as, um, uh, you know, as time went on. Um, and he's very famous for his absurdist uh, fiction in particular. The, the works prior to people from Bloomington are actually a bit more abstract, often characters won't have names. They'll be called oh. like the man or the middle-aged man or, you know, the, the man in the red shirt and the man in the white shirt or things like that, you know. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, they're a bit more abstract. And you see sort of that um, a slight evolution um, towards, I guess, the more personal or the more realist at a little bit. Like you see a little bit of that as at the time, like right before um, the stories of people from Bloomington are written. And then people from Bloomington really represents his, not his debut, of course, because he was very well known before that, but his debut as um, writing realist fiction, I guess. But it's sort of, as you can tell, realist, absurdist fiction. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, places and vividly described, you know, scenes and, and characters, but they're still all a bit odd, I guess. Uh huh. That's the word that I used also was odd. And so I'd like to uh, set some expectations about this book, because I think for many of us who have associations with Bloomington, we might anticipate kind of a nostalgic, you know, reminiscences about graduate school days in B-Town, you know, kind of a literary breaking away uh, with sweet scenes from Kirkwood and Nick's English pup. And that's not what we have in this book. Uh, so yeah, for the listeners out there and potential readers, what we have instead are it is really very interesting, I think, and um, more original and probably more intriguing. And the stories are odd. That's the word that I used also. I wouldn't describe them as absurdist, if you come from an absurdist background, it's more that they're odd, but they are preoccupied with illness, um, strange domestic habits, and maybe relationships that are just off kilter and uh, a little bizarre. And the locals, as seen through the eyes of a foreigner, as in this case, 
are not sympathetic, but they're strange and uh, sometimes quite unfriendly. So uh, sorry to put this on you, but can you place these stories in the context of Dharma's other writing so that we can understand them better? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, it's funny that you say, um, I feel like it's one of, this is one of those books that your focus can shift depending on which way you look at it. You know, it's yeah. almost like something iridescent. You look at it in one light and you're like, oh, and <laughs> another light. Oh, and I do remember, yeah, at first being like, oh, the characters are very, you know, alienating and peculiar. And that actually was one of the, um, one of the reviewers when, uh, the book came out originally in Indonesia, described it as, I think, portraits of strange people. <laughs> and yeah, and, um, you know, people so, from and, Bloomington. <laughs> oh, dear. Exactly. And, you know, like, um, and it's so funny because actually when I looked at, um, compared it to his earlier works to set this in context, um, I realized that there's a lot more more compassion and sympathy. These are comparatively like much more compassionate and sympathetic, uh-huh. um, you know, to their to well to certain characters than than his previous works. Which mm-hmm. you know because they're much more like you know no one has names. Um, you know, there's no um, description or like these elaborate story plots, and 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 they're they're just like quite different. They, these go into quite a, a fair amount of detail, and there's something like very strange in the way these characters show these pictures of people in social torment, I guess, I mm-hmm. for lack of a better word, you know, people who desire human company mm-hmm. and then do strange things to get it, yet at the same time really hate other human beings and are get, get really irritated when they're around them. Yeah, so I think that's that's the context in which they're being placed. So it is it is a bit of a strange thing. Like on one hand, right, you say the, the characters are very... Um, alienated, alienating, um, and, you know, unsympathetic. But on the other hand, right, you start to feel for these narrators who are so yeah. corrigently, who are so set almost on self-sabotaging themselves, you know, yeah. sort of jealously stare at, at other people being happy and try to, you know, ruin their happiness. And you just can't help feeling sorry for them in a way. Yeah, it's it's interesting, yeah, to sort of think of the flip side of, the dislikable character, right? Which is, you feel a bit sad that they're dislikable and what, you know, how did they get to this state? Yeah, they seem so conflicted, right? Mm. Yeah, and it's funny because they're so mean sometimes to other characters, yet with, you sense this yearning, right? So, and in fact, it's funny actually now that I, it's been a little while since I've read the book. And so as I think back on them, I've stripped away some of that that sort of negative reaction to some of their behavior. And in fact, I think of them as being really human, which is, is funny that, that that's been the, you know, the outcome of reading the stories and then letting them percolate for a while. Because, yeah, they often seem to be really wanting a connection, but maybe not knowing how to go to go about it. And so instead that sometimes the opposite happens of what you think they really want. Yeah, that's it. That's exactly it. And it was really strange to translate this during the pandemic mm. because this, the pandemic was a time and, you know, um, all the lockdowns in, in Sydney in any case, and all the restrictions began happening um, just when I, I think I was in the middle of translating the second story. Okay. And it was just, it was really strange. It was like 
the people people from Bloomington's reality happening, you know, this mm-hmm. sense of social suspicion. I mean, I don't know if you remember, but, you know, people were still unsure about how it was passed around, mm-hmm. right? Like you couldn't touch anything. You didn't feel like you could walk next to someone mm-hmm. or, you know, just nearby, near someone in public, or at least that's what it was like here. Um, I have two small children. It was so stressful to take them out grocery shopping or anything because they were touching everything and going near, you know, lots of elderly people. And I was like, no, don't, (laughs) you're going to, you're going to, you know, make them sick. Don't touch that. Don't a lot of, you know, staying at home. That was considered the best measure. And there was, there was, you know, that, that sense in people from Bloomington and so many stories, that fear of contagion yeah, being, you know, sort of in your room, staring outside, you know, out at the outside world or, you know, just sort of thinking about what people are doing outside or, you know, like in the opening story, the narrator's looking at uh, the the old man without a name, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, out, out his window, from his window. Um, yeah, so all of that sort of took on this very real aspect mm-hmm. as we're living out, yeah, the, uh, the COVID thing. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, it's really interesting because that's exactly it. I mean, you get the sense of a lot of the characters, the narrators in people from Bloomington are quite, I mean, there's a recognition that other people are dangerous and that you don't mm-hmm. know other people. And especially these weird, the Hoosiers, these, these, these <laughs> weird Indiana people, but also that there's, you know, a desire to connect, which is really that yin and yang that we had during the pandemic that we felt so isolated but also we were so afraid of each other (laughs) yeah no that's exactly right and it's it's been it was interesting um you know translating people from Bloomington and having the chance to talk uh to correspond with Bodhidharma himself Mm -hmm. he was very open he was very happy to answer any questions I had about the translation and give feedback um because you know he was able to speak English, read English, because, you know, he spent his graduate school days in in Bloomington. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was so interesting, you know, to hear him talk about his time in Bloomington. Mm -hmm. And he, you know, actually had very, you'd be surprised, very pleasant memories. (laughs) Um, You know, but he's always maintained, and, you know, this is true in, you know, interviews I found with him as well, that, you know, his fictional life is his fictional life. Because I think uh, at one point, I remember reading an interview and people said, you know, was oh, this how you see the world, you know, like in this cruel sort of way, you know? And he said, no, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, his art is his art. I yeah. Guess. Um, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. So I, I just found that pretty amazing that, yeah, he was able to sort of take his time in Bloomington, which he seemed at least, uh, you know, in our conversations to recall fondly. And, you know, um, turn it into this this strange, um, I guess, townscape that you see in, in the collection. He wrote that the book wasn't really about Bloomington and that he would have written similar stories if he had lived someplace else, you know, if he'd lived in Paris. What do you think he meant by that? I think what he meant, and this came through a lot in our conversations during the translation process, mm-hmm. um, is that he wanted to get to the heart, I guess he, he was very important for him to convey this idea of like universal human nature. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's probably why the short fiction that he wrote before People from Bloomington um, is more abstract. And it, it has to do with this idea that people are the same everywhere. Yeah. 
people in Bloomington, people in Paris, people in Dublin, and people in um, Surabaya, where you know he um, ended up, uh, you know, just li uh, living where he eventually settled down. I I think it's really cool because as um, I'm going to put on my sort of uh, ex-academic post-colonial scholar hat. <laughs> so, <laughs> wow, you know, so, I'm going to yeah, see what yeah. that looks like. <laughs> yeah, because I used to be. Yeah, it's very. It has frills and 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 pom -pom <laughs> But, you know, like, you know, historically, right, you see a lot of um, fiction being written about the Far East, right? And this is from, like, the colonial period. So Joseph Conrad writing about the Belgian Congo, mm. writing about, yeah, the, you know, uh, the Indonesian archipelago. You know, um, you know uh, a lot of fiction being written, yeah, about other places, and that's made possible, right, through European colonization. Uh -huh. Right, and this idea that that's possible somehow, and you know, when we read those books, you know, we think of them as great works of art, and we don't really think twice about it, right? We don't. Um, but you know, when to have an Indonesian author writing about the American Midwest, right? We still do a double take. Um, oh, even yeah, even though we say that you know, um, the the excuses yeah. or the reasons given, yeah, for yeah, turn, turnabout's about, fair play. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh -huh. and we see, right. Like human nature is human nature everywhere. And, you know, I, I'm sure you're familiar with debates recently about mm -hmm. like who has the right to portray, you know, certain cultures or tell other stories. So the controversy around American dirt and all of that. Mm -hmm. Right. But the question is, right, when it turns about, when mm -hmm. is it, do we consider it fair play? Right. Mm -hmm. And um, it was really a very interesting and eye opening pro process to see what exactly was the reception, you know, even when we were trying to get the book published. So I was working with my agent closely about getting the book published. And one editor even said, you'll never, you won't, you'll never find a publisher for it, which I thought was rather mean. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, to even say that and to say it because, right, like Indonesian fiction, when people pick up an Indonesian book, the implication, right, is they want it to be about Indonesia, that that Indonesian writers don't have that right to write about anything, even though we're, you know, people are saying that, well, if the writer, a writer should be free to write about anything. So I guess yeah. it makes me think about, you know, I, I really appreciated, you know, being able to publish this book and with Penguin Classics, no less, um, to say that, you know, if that's what you believe, everyone, you know, put your money where, where your mouth is. And, mm -hmm. You know, say like, and and be welcoming of um, representations, you know, from from unexpected corners, you know. Yeah, I think for me, I, I mean, I guess, yeah, I certainly have a bad reaction to somebody saying if they pick up a book that's written by an Indonesian writer, they want it to be about Indonesia. Well, says who? And as mm. a person from Bloomington, I certainly was extremely interested in what an Indonesian graduate student would say about Bloomington, right? I mean, I guess I feel as though there's a difference between interest and expectation, but yeah, I certainly thought it was interesting. I should mention here that this book, you know, not only contains the short stories, which are fascinating, but there's also quite a bit of commentary about the book. So there's a foreword by, you're going to have to pronounce this person's name. Intan Paramedita. Um, there's also an introduction by Tiffany. And then there are also, there are some notes. There are a lot of notes actually in the book 
um, pointing out literary references. I mean, it's quite an experience, this book. It's really nice. It's not a, you know, it's not a big giant tome, um, but it, it's very complete. It, you really feel like you've had a very nice experience after you've read this book. So, I, you know, I really do recommend it for people. And, uh, and that's one of the things that you talk about in your uh, introduction is about, you know, sort of curiosity how is this book going to be received? Uh, certainly quite a long time after its original publication, first time being published in English, but also with this, you know, sort of ongoing brewing controversy about who gets to write about what. So I have to ask you, so what has the reception been like? I don't know. I would have liked, I've gotten, well, you'd like to know that I've gotten a great reception from podcasters. Oh, so interesting. I've gotten a lot of a lot of interest, actually, a lot more than any of the other books that I've translated or or written, actually. Okay. So that's been really nice. Um, I find that um people who specifically do have a connection with Bloomington, like yourself, um, they've sort of come out of the woodwork and are yeah. like, oh look, there's a book set in Bloomington. So that was really that was really nice as well. There was one review, like I wish I would like to see more reviews of the book or, you know, people reading it. Um, sometimes I do fear, you know, just having been in the industry a little while, uh, sometimes I do fear that older works um, aren't as, I don't know, trendy or bookstagrammable as, yeah. <laughs> as, newer, as newer works or, you know, um, living authors. So that's, that's an issue, right? Um, you know, the, on the one hand, the Penguin Classics cover is very cool and very prestigious. On the other hand, I think there's a tendency for people to say, oh, it's a classic. So therefore, it's not like it doesn't have that same, um, oh. what is it, contemporary buzz around it, which, mm -hmm. you know, bit, and, you know I, I find annoying. And there was one review which was a, a bit strange to me. I feel like the reviewer was so bemused by it. It was like, it, it really doesn't sound anything like Indonesian at all. Oh. And then I was like, yeah, yes, it was very Whoa. funny. Wait and it was, it was sort of like this compliment, but also this weirded, this very, like, um, he's very weirded out by it. Oh, they and, meant you know, that in a positive, positive, they meant that in a positive way? It was really hard to tell, like, oh. positive, but really. That's even worse. <laughs> yeah, so it was like positive, but like, almost like, how could this be? Yeah. It, it was interesting. And I was like, so she. So she's translating it from Indonesian, but Indonesian, like, how does it sound like this? So it must be, you know, uh, Sal must be doing, you know, something as a translator to make it sound like this, because how could it not sound Indonesian at all? But, oh. you know, the, the answer being is like, well, you know, in Indonesian, the books are meant to sound like they're from, you know, an American perspective, actually, like only one story mentions a foreign uh, student at all as the narrator and that's only in passing and the rest are supposed to be from like blooming you know Tonian's point of view mm. so so it was sort of this this comment where it's like on the one hand it's like what's she doing to make the translation sound authentic on the other hand um, the translation can't be authentic because it's in Indonesian but it's about Bloomington so it was it was a very interesting yeah very interesting review um, not my favorite review, but very interesting. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, we I've talked about this before on the podcast. There's just a tendency of people to want to compartmentalize things. And it's unfortunate then that when things 
aren't easily compartmentalized, that instead of celebrating that, they're just perplexed. Because, you know, it's the stories are so original and so fresh and, you know, so um, different, right? And then the fact that it took so long for it to get translated, and then in fact, you're the one who translated it, you know, because you have a very strong background in literature, Right. So, you know, there's just a lot happening in this book, but uh, but I think that's cause for its celebration, not just for like, well, <laughs> doesn't sound. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. And I think that calls into question. Right. You know, like the whole remember when um, Elena Ferrante's uh, Neapolitan Quartet, it's a quartet, right? Yeah, was published. And people were like, wow, we didn't expect it to be such a runaway success. Like it was. It took, you know, publishers and, and editors by surprise because they said, like, yeah. we didn't expect this. to. Yeah. And I, I find that so interesting. You know, it's almost mm-hmm. like the publishing industry, the book world is like perpetually astonished when things succeed. I know. And they're like, we didn't think it would succeed. And it's like, well, yeah, because maybe people like things that aren't in, in those compartments, like you like you said, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely my frustration with the publishing industry is that sometimes I think they're really out of sync with readers and that that readers are much more open to books that cross genres or, you know, are just different in a certain way that, you know, that, of course, lots of readers do read a certain type of book because, and they expect a certain type of story. So, you know, readers are, readers vary, but I think there are a lot more open-minded readers out there than sometimes publishers think, or at least that's my impression because of the way they churn out books that, you know, just hit the same spot over and over and over. But I'm so glad this book came out because I really do think it's interesting and, and a cool little gem, right? With its own, with its own story. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I, I I really enjoyed it. I want to talk a little bit about the, well, I guess you might call it the language part of the book. Mm-hmm. So there are parts of the book that to me are very funny. Um, there's certain phrases or imagery that strike a kind of humor that sometimes I would see in Russian short stories, more the absurdist Russian short stories. So for example, in one story, our narrator is spying on a family of M's. So everybody in the family has a name that starts with an M. And he has enemied this family, if that's the right word, because he thinks one of the kids has scratched his car. And so he watches this apparently happy family. Actually, they they do seem genuinely happy. They may be the only happy people in the book. And he fantasizes about shooting them or cutting off their hands and feet. And so he, watching them drive off one day, he thinks to himself, oh, you know, how wonderful it would be if their car crashed while crossing the overpass and then bequeathing all of them the gift of being maimed. But uh, then uh, the... The uh, narration goes on to say, but their heap of junk zoomed off, made a deft turn and sped along the overpass without a hitch. So it's such a great language, right? You know, the heap of junk and the deft turn and speeding off and the without a hitch. So I was really curious as a translator, how much credit you take for that kind of language and then how much of it was just in the original. Hmm. 
Yeah, as a translator, and especially, you know, um, with this book, because I just found uh, the phrasing, the rhythm is just so like, he just good, like excellent, like good comic timing, able, mm-hmm. you know, in serious moments to slow down um, and sad moments to slow down as well. Like there was almost nothing. It was all there. Okay. So I'd say that me, you know, choosing certain phrases or whatever in English is more to mirror the effect that it has in Indonesian, even if it's not a word for word translation. I can, you know, just looking at the original passage now, mm-hmm. it's all there, right? Like it's, it's all like definitely there, like that very particular um, phrasing and rhythm and all of that, you know, uh, for example, you know, how wonderful it would be, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uses the, the term alanka baiknya. And alanka is kind of like a, oh, how kind of, you know, quality to it, you know. Um, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's all like, it's all, it's all there. But um, yeah, it just a matter of like, I guess, translating it to have that same effect in English. I mean, it definitely sounds like a native English speaker. And maybe this goes back to the reviewers saying it didn't sound very Indonesian. And the humor is, seems to me, so I wouldn't say it's specifically American, but it but it really rings in American English, right? The heap of junk and the without a hitch, you know, that's just such a, such a great American English expression without a hitch. It's funny. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's what I really was trying to do. I remember thinking, like, sort of channeling, I don't know, channeling um, a very particular type of, of um, English for it. So John ah. was actually known in Indonesian for sprinkling his um, Indonesian with uh, Javanese words. Oh, so that's a very particular dialect because he's um, Javanese, and um, oh. Indonesian is actually a language that was sort of enforced by the state, uh-huh. um, for lack of a better word. To um, it was sort of the lingua franca of that area, and what happened was that I guess to unite as a nation and to fight for political independence, they focused on building having a common language and encouraging that common language so that's the language we know as Indonesian now or Bahasa Indonesia Um, but actually the Bahasa or the language that um, people would speak every day in their lives was not necessarily uh, Indonesian but other dialects and Javanese is the majority dialect so there's that feel in the Indonesian Mm. of um, these you know, Javanese words being sprinkled in. And they're very, how do I put it, earthy, like earthy Yeah, words. colloquialism. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I think the, the word that's used to describe the car in this particular scene is like, it's like a very, you know, like they're more of a, yeah, just like sort of down home kind of wording, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I actually wanted to convey that sort of down home mm-hmm. colloquialism in the English as well, because I feel felt very strongly that, in the Indonesian, he wasn't wanting these to feel like a foreigner describing them. Right. But he wanted them to have that fla- that particular flavor, you know, in the the Indonesian. So it's it's funny, there's a mix of Javanese words, and then there would also be a mix of um words that you wouldn't use necessarily in Indonesian, but are obviously Americanisms that he's carrying across. Oh. Yeah. So like in Indonesian, for example, um, there's more, um, you'd use more terms of address. So for example, Jennifer, I'd probably be referring maybe to you 
not like not necessarily with so many U's also, but also, you know, uh, in basically the equivalent of Jennifer or what your address or title would be like miss or ma'am, or there are the mm-hmm. equivalents like that kind of. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so in Indonesian, like he has the, this character addressing the, the children as like, um, or, you know, he'll have older characters address younger characters, like as uh, anak muda, which is like, you know, child or like son. So that's why there are a lot of sons in the, oh. in, the in the book, because it, it has that um, English ring, you know, like, you know, you almost think like the old fashioned, like, well, son, yes. you know, let's tell you, you know, that kind of thing. And I think he's trying to replicate that. Yeah, there was a lot of like feel that I had to think about like how he was wanting the original to sound, you know, yeah. a particular flavor and then moving it across into the English. Yeah. So I was very much thinking in terms of like, you know, almost, I don't want to say leave it to Beaver, but kind of, you know, that kind of, you know, swell and, mm-hmm. um, you know, sunny boy and like all of that kind of stuff. Like I wanted sort of to add a little bit of that, um, not, not heavily, but inflect it, you know, into the the translation as well. Yeah, it's interesting because there is a real formality in the way the characters interact. So it's sort of funny because the internal monologue is pretty colloquial or sometimes even slangy, you know, mm-hmm. he, you know, where you know, like you get his internal observations about something, but then when the characters actually address each other, it it's it's often pretty formal and pretty a distant, you know, there's a remove between people. So, yeah, is, but of course, I think that's really human, right? That our interactions with each other are often quite different from what we're thinking inside, right? Yeah, that's right. And in, in particular, right, in this these stories, right, it's all about that distance that people mm-hmm. are keeping, you know, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. right? The happiest characters are the ones you see interacting freely and almost with no personal boundaries with each other. But the narrator, and especially for each of these stories, there's always a distance Mm -hmm. um, that he's holding and maintaining. And it's just very, yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah, they seem very inhibited and Mm -hmm. unable to yeah, act out some of their well, some of their impulses. It's just as well if they yeah. if they want to cut off somebody's hands yeah. and feet. You know, I'm realizing it's such a benefit to us that your that your language skills were such that you could your command of English is such such that you could create that effect for us in English because it, it really makes the the stories fun, just very relatable and. And amusing a lot just because of the language, right? The word, the words that you've chosen. Yeah, thank you. I'm just curious about this. When there are books like this, there does tend to be a certain preoccupation with accuracy. And so I was curious how you dealt with that. Did you spend a lot of time thinking about accuracy in the book? Did you feel as though you had to go visit Bloomington? So how did you balance these um, accuracy and sort of validity issues? Yeah. Um, so those were actually a few questions that I um, would initially ask Bodhidharma, like, um, mm-hmm. you know, because I just wanted to make sure, because some things, you know, um, were obviously like real life details, like the, um, sorry, I'm going to mispronounce it, the Kaviat Mtor bookstore. 
Oh, caveat emptor. Yes, thank you. Okay. That's, that's how we say it in Bloomington, which may be extremely yeah. far from No, no, that's probably right. Yeah, because you say, like, he has caveats. That's, that would make sense. That's what, Yeah, or like, you know, the um, the cobblestone lines or the brick line paved streets, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, those were all details, you know, I, I looked up. And um, I think the River Jordan. Uh-huh. Like, Street. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those were really interesting things where I was like, oh, I didn't know that. I didn't even know that tulip trees existed. Okay. You know? So mm-hmm. at first I was like, our state, like a, our state tree. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, and you know, like, um, I was like, is that a bush or like it's a tree? There's a tree with tulips on it. And I was like, oh, it's a it's oh. the state tree of, of Indiana. Yeah. Uh-huh. So that was really fascinating. So some of those things were just, you know, me learning about it. And you know, mm-hmm. you know, I was sort of doing um, I guess the job that any uh, editor would do at the same time while translating it. So like sort of fact checks and yeah, like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so there were cases where I was like, you know, I'd say like, oh, this street doesn't seem to line up with this street or I can't find this street mm-hmm. on the map. And, you know, he would say like, well, there's some cases in which it's not like he diverges in some, in some points from, from reality. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but there were some, you know, details that he kept. And I think it was a matter of maybe saying like, okay, well, you know, this is its own, the Bloomington in this book is its own thing. Mm, its you know, own it world. To, mm-hmm. Yeah, like it ha- it can correspond in some some respects, but not exactly. And I mean, as a writer, I know what that's like. Um, my first book, The Odd Fits, you know, I mentioned one site, one place, but, you know, it doesn't actually exist in real life. Yeah. It's meant to just be, you know, sort of like just there. But I think that is always the risk, right? When you use real life settings, you know, you're always worried like, oh, people are going to say oh, this doesn't exist or this doesn't correspond with this exactly. And as you know, um, probably, um, you know, some of the the apartment, the graduate school housing that he, Mm -hmm. the graduate student housing he stayed in, like those sort of take on lives of their own, the ever, you know, Everman and tulip tree apartments, all of a sudden they, you know, they're, they're much more than, you know, just graduate student housing on campus. They're like other things. They become like these gargantuan apartment buildings at the, in the last story. Um, yeah, so all, all you know those sorts of little things. Yeah, I that's right. I think there's maybe it's at the very end where there's a reference to the number of stories that there are in, <laughs> in Tulip Tree or Agamemnon, and I'm like, whoa, we don't have a building that size probably in all of the state of Indiana, nonetheless. But you know, I mean, I enjoyed that, and you know, I'll just speak for the kind of reader that I am. To me, it was almost like a parallel universe or you know you just never know how your hometown is going to look through the eyes of somebody else right and so to me it's really amusing it's like you know this massive apartment building but it gives but it's amusing to me because I think oh maybe you know maybe that's kind of what the building looked like to him that it was just this huge tower in this sort of low low town right and so the thing just sticks up like it's you know something from outer space I don't know I mean I think it's uh, I think it's amusing but so yeah so I guess I'd say that to the readers don't expect this to be as I say you know a reminiscence about your old college days but also don't you know I hope that we can we don't have to restrict the book to our own views of what Bloomington looks like but maybe this is a different Bloomington. Yeah. And um, one of the reviews that I have liked the most is um, it came out recently in The Millions. I think Sarah Layden is the reviewer. She's also from, I think she's from Indiana or around Bloomington. 
Oh, okay. but it was interesting because she had made a recent visit and sort of used it as an occasion also to think about, I guess, her impressions of Livington. Mm-hmm. So that was that was very interesting as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So one another one of the things that so amused me when I was uh, reading the book and getting familiar with all the pieces of it is that uh, Donald Gray is uh, thanked in the book. So he served as Dharma's advisor when he was in the graduate English graduate program at IU. And I know Don uh, because his wife, Mary, Mary Alice Gray, uh, were friends with my parents. Mary Alice has uh, passed away. And then Don was instrumental in my getting a small scholarship uh, from the English department when I attended IU uh, Bloomington and took some cl- I took some classes from him and was a big fan. So I was curious if you had any comments about Dharma's academic experience at IU and his doctoral work. Um, I don't have uh, any in particular about that. But what is interesting is, um, you know, because I saw that uh, Don was, you know, in the dedication. Mm-hmm. So after... Bodhidharma passed away last last year in August. Um, I felt like, oh, maybe I should write to him, mm-hmm. you know, because the book is dedicated to him. So I, I wanted to let him know and offer him a, you know, a copy of the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that was, I mean, it was just nice to to see. I guess I feel almost privileged to 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 have been able to do that because. Um, um, Don wrote back and said, you know, oh, I didn't know. Um, oh. You know, but I, but, and he said like, but, you know, he had told me that the English translation of the book was coming out. So uh-huh. they were in correspondence. Okay. Um, you know, or at least had recently corresponded. Um, and that was really nice to hear. And it was really funny because actually, um, you know, Don said like, oh, you know, I have very fond memories of, you know, Buddhi Dharma as a student. He, you know, he had this marvelous grasp of Jane Austen's irony because, you know, he wrote his dissertation on on Jane Austen. Mm -hmm. Um, And he said, like, and that that always astonished me because, you know, sometimes it can be hard to grasp that in a a language that's not your native tongue. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But then what was interesting is that he shared this really um, nice anecdote about Bodhidharma. He said he said he also had this he was such a strange person with such a sense of humor. And he said kind of like, there was one time when he, I think he said he went to a show or an opera uh-huh. and, you know, he was watching it. And then after the first act and the lights came on, Bodhidharma was sitting next to him. <laughs> like, you know, it just seemed like a scene out of one of the short stories, you know, like that all of a sudden, you know, you the lights dim and you're watching this show and then you, you know, the lights go back on and you look next to you and and there's, you know, this person next to you. <laughs> Oh, they um, didn't go together. They no, just they happened. Yeah. Oh, they just happened to sit. That or is like that's de- that's yeah. definitely like something out of one of the stories. Yes, I know. So I a surprise, like, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. That was oh, really, that's yeah, funny. It was very funny to me. Um, and you know, Buddhidharma for someone who was, I guess he he was very well respected. You know, um, as as an academic, as a as a writer. Um, in Indonesia. And I was always just so amazed that, you know, he was so humble and and friendly and mm-hmm. personable in our interactions. You know, he even asked, would ask about me. He he went and read my work, my novels. Oh, nice. I was so surprised. Yeah. He was so, I knew he was so busy. Um, even in his 80s, he was still going quite strong and mm-hmm. had a lot of teaching and admin duties to do at the university in, in Surabaya. So, yeah, it's just amazing. 
amazing, amazing man. Yeah, I was sorry to hear that he was not alive when the book came out because he he seems to have been very invested in the republication and you know you and yeah just getting the whole the whole kitten caboodle together. So I'm sorry that he didn't see it in its final shape. Yeah, no, it is a shame. But um, something that's nice that's coming up, if I may, um, sort of do a plug for an event. Oh please. Um, so the. Burlingame, Burlingame Library in California, they've agreed to host an event for people from Bloomington and in memory of Bodhidharma. Oh, um, how yeah. cool. But Bodhidharma's daughter is coming. Oh, well. okay. So that is really nice because, um, you know, at, at the time, you know, when he passed away, things were very hectic, as, as you know, as you know, like lots of people were passing away at the time. Yeah. Yeah, so it'll be um, an online event um, at the Burlingame Public Library or hosted by them. Uh, and it'll be on Tuesday, September the 20th at 7 p.m. Pacific time. I, I'll, I'll try to send a poster or a Zoom link or something uh, closer to the date to you. And I don't know if you want to attend or, you know, maybe um, publicize it along with the with the podcast. But. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, I'll definitely publish a link in the show notes. That just sounds great. Are you going to be able to make it back for that event? Yeah, it's really interesting to me that he wrote his dissertation about Jane Austen. And I, I think you talk in the introduction about him having actually been discouraged from doing that because so many people have already written about Jane Austen. But your introduction, you know, you talk quite a bit about the uh, the placing the book in the context of Western literature. So I was curious if you wanted to tell the readers a little bit more about that. Yes, definitely. Because um, there are so many references to the Western literary canon mm -hmm. in the book, right? Um, I mean, you mentioned Russian, right? Um, uh -huh. the, the Russian tone. Uh -huh. uh, and um, I think the death of uh, Ivan Ilyich, yeah, so there's a mention of that, right? Like there's a lot of names um, for the characters that he, you know, told me. And this is the reason why there are so many, there's a, there are so many footnotes is because he made up notes for me oh. to, um, you know, to, to help me with the translation. And I thought some of them were so, so great and so useful. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of references to um, Austin characters and in particular names. There's this extended reference to uh, the Scarlet Letter Yes. For Charles, uh, the last story, Charles Laborn, but also for the short story Ores, right? The uh, main characters, uh, one of the main characters is named Hester, right? Which is obviously from the Scarlet Letter. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's also like, yeah, references to Hamlet, mm -hmm. um, sly references, really funny references to um, the Wasteland and um, Prayers of Steel by Carl Sandburg. So, you know, the the parts where um, the narrator in Mrs. Elberhart goes into the library to look for examples of good poems. And he reads them and he's like, what lousy poems. Oh, are. yeah, that's <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was really funny, yeah. So there are all these like little sly things. Yeah, uh-huh. Right, and I think it's interesting because um, I know at least, you know, from my background in, in literary studies that we do tend to compartmentalize maybe we say, we'll say that, oh, English literature, there are some, you know, reference, you know, like some, some cross-pollination with like French or German or Italian, but they're sort of geographic, you yeah. know, um, yeah. right. And they don't take 
this and this idea of you know you, that you can compartmentalize different countries uh literatures yeah doesn't take into the account right the fact of globalization right the fact mm-hmm. of colonization the fact that you know like people are going different places to study mm-hmm. and are studying different um later, uh, literatures from different traditions so i almost can see you know when the publisher asks cuz they send out those questionnaires you know how do you see this being marketed or whatever okay and i remember saying like you know to be honest i think this could be an american liter- literary work it's you know oh, said in yeah. america it was written based on um you know his experience in america and you know it has the, the same references to you know um western literary works you know i mean there are also references to indonesian works as well but i guess the question is yeah why why compartmentalize um, yeah. to use the term that you were using before mm-hmm. Yeah, in a way, I would say it's much more represent, representative now of the United States that we have. I mean, we have so many Asians now in the United mm-hmm. States. And of course, they're they're doing exactly that, right? All this cross-pollination where, you know, we're getting more Asian influences and then they're taking home things from Western literature, for example. I mean, I just think it's great. But isn't it odd that we haven't yet fully embraced this as being, you know, that this is just normal, right? It's still perceived as somehow odd, uh, somehow, yeah, uh, bizarre. It's funny. Yeah, yeah, that's right. There's, there's this lag. And um, yeah. I was reading some, some other essay that was really interesting that was commenting the same thing about the internet. Like it was complaining that uh, works that are written now aren't really writing about the internet in this organic way or incorporating it into the fabric of the novel, the way that technology, right, you know, um, smartphones, all of that, you know, the web is, is is integrated into our daily lives now. So I just found that interesting. Right? Yeah. Um, there is this mental lag or, you know, this lag of like what's normal to read about versus our everyday right. life. Yeah. yeah, it almost, I mean, it's, a, it's censoring is kind of a strong word, but it's almost as though we're limiting ourselves right, that we feel as though we need to write about certain things. And yet that's not our lived experience, right? Yeah, that's right. You know, that, that, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, that we think there's a, there's a right, there's a right way to, to talk about modern life and it doesn't include all this mixed up stuff. <laughs> yeah, I mean, exactly, right? Like in novels, there's so many scenes that, you know, where they're having in-person conversations but actually, when you think about it, I mean, maybe like, what is it? Three-fourths of our conversations now might just happen on text. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. But, you know, once you put like, you know, start putting text bubbles in, it has more of a sort of like a pop, a poplet feel or like. a Right. You know, like, yeah. So it's just very interesting. Yeah. yeah. You'll get compartmentalized if you do that. If you include yeah. a lot of text messages in your novel, you'll get compartmentalized. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Well, Tiffany, it's been so lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much for taking the time uh, to be with us today. Uh, and before I let you go, is there anything you'd like to share with the audience about the book or really anything at all? Uh, no, I just, I just think, you know, I would encourage, I mean, obviously, as, as a translator, my job is to encourage everyone to read it. Mm-hmm. But also as someone who began translating it, and, you know, spent her time immersed in translating it for, I mean, a year and a bit, mm-hmm. I would say that it's just such a great book, like, it never, 
there's always something new you find with each mm-hmm. story. And as I said, like you just hold it up to the light in different ways and you just find different little gems or different things. And, you know, the characters still in the situations kind of linger on afterwards. It's like the strange, slow burn. Um, yeah. So I don't know. I, I just love it so much on that level and would hardly recommend it as a reader and as a translator. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. So I uh, recommend it to my listeners as well, especially now that we've had this discussion about how it's really more representative of the world that we're living in, maybe than a lot of the products that are put in front of us, because it is a mix of old and new and East and West and classic literature and absurdism. And yeah, it's really great fun. I think it's a great book. And I think, yes, it's also like unexpectedly fun. Mm-hmm. Um, just the, the situations, you know, it's almost like, I don't know how to how to describe it. I was describing it to my husband once as, as like curb your enthusiasm, but, oh. you know, almost like, you know, this narrator gets, especially for um, Yorick, right? He gets into these really, this really absurd situation where, you know, he buys that special cake. I won't give too much away. Oh. He buys a special cake. Yes. And then he gets chased by dogs down an alley while carrying <laughs> this special, you're like, oh my gosh, God. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, that, that story is very yeah. funny. He goes to the party, and the romantic rival has the exact same cake. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and in a way, you know, seen through his eyes, he's like, "Ha, that just figures, doesn't it?" But <laughs> but as a reader, we're like, "No, this is not normal." <laughs> exactly, and it's so absurd. Even the cake that he wants, he buys, right? Like it's um. A wedding cake like cake, because he reads somewhere that this is how you show your love for someone. Yeah. You go and buy a wedding cake like cake. And it's like, who who thinks that that's normal? (laughs) That's totally ridiculous from the beginning. And then it turns out somebody else did pull the same stunt, right? You're like, what the heck? (laughs) Yeah, that's why it's so it's so funny. I just love um, yeah. And you know, there are parts that are so sad, like the old man with no name when you find out what happens to him and his backstory. And yeah, there's also, you know, yeah, these moments of like profound, like, oh, that's really awful, you know, or even Mrs. Elberhart, where, you know, the narrator strikes up a relationship, a friendship with, you know, a rather cranky old woman. Um, And that actually turns into this very oddly beautiful thing, even Mm -hmm. though, you know, they're both trying to keep their distance from each other. It's almost like they also can't keep away from each other. They like care for each other, even though they're, you know, accusing each other of giving, you know, each other their their respective disease. It's, it's very mm-hmm. odd. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it, it's odd, but there's there's also a real undercurrent of just humanness in it, and that, yeah, that's what really struck me. Is sometimes they have such odd relationships, but you can see, you know, you can imagine that happening. In real life, that people do have odd relationships. That 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 is that is part of our world. Yeah, and it's true even for you know when you think about it, the people we love most, right? You know, um, you know the sister or brother or parent that you just can't stand. At the same time, you check in on them, make sure they're okay. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that you you have yeah, like our emotional lives are and relationships can be actually very complicated, right? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we can feel jealous about someone, yet we, you know, or, or resent them, yet we still love them or consider them a friend. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's 
Well, I really appreciate so much that he wrote the stories and and really appreciate that you translated them into English so we can read them over here. So yeah, thank you so much for the work that you've done. And thanks again for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks so much again um, for having me and thanks for persevering despite our, you know, you know, we were trying, we, as you said, we tried to get together for a while and um, it took a while. <laughs> it took a while, but we finally got there and it was great. Yeah, thanks again. Thanks everybody for listening. We really appreciate it. Don't forget to check out the show notes for additional information about this episode. And give us a like or a thumbs up on Podomatic or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'd also love to have your support on Patreon. And get in touch. We'd love to hear from you through the internet or Twitter or whatever means works for you. And finally, thanks to Caffeine Creek for the theme music.